All right. We're on chapter five, the meaning of emancipation according to black women. Quote, curse be Canaan, end quote, cried the Hebrew priest. Quote, a servant of servants shall he be unto his brethren, end quote. Are not Negroes servants? Ergo, upon such spiritual myths was the anachronism of American slavery built. And this was the degradation that once made menial servants the aristocrats among color folk. When emancipation came, the lure of house service for the Negro was gone. The path of salvation for the emancipated host of black folk no longer lay through the kitchen door with this wide hall and pillared yards beyond. It lay, as every Negro soon knew and knows, an escape from menial serfdom. After a quarter of a century of, quote, freedom, end quote, vast numbers of black women were still working in the fields. Those who had made it into the, quote, big house, end quote, found the door toward new opportunities sealed shut unless they preferred, for example, to wash clothes at home for a medley of white families as opposed to performing a medley of household jobs for a single white family. Only an infamous, only an infinite, I keep I've never seen this word before. Only an infinitesimal, only an infinitesimal number of black women had managed to escape from the fields, from the kitchen or from the washroom. According to the 1890 census, there were 2.7 million black girls and women over the age of 10. More than a million of them worked for wages. 38.7% worked in agriculture. 30.8% worked in household domestic service, 15.6% in laundry work, and a negligible 2.8% in manufacturing. The few who found jobs in industry usually performed the dirtiest and lowest paid work, and they had not really made a significant breakthrough, for their slave mothers had also worked in the southern cotton mills, in the sugar refineries, and even in the mines. For black women in 1890, freedom must have appeared to be even more remote in the future than it had been at the end of the Civil War. As during slavery, black women who worked in agriculture, as sharecroppers, tenant farmers, or farm, work, farm workers, were no less oppressed than the men alongside whom they labored the day long. They were often compelled to sign, quote, contracts, end quote, with landowners who wanted to reduplicate the antebellum conditions. The contract's expiration date was frequently a mere formality since landlords could claim that workers owed them more than the equivalent of the prescribed labor period. In the aftermath of the emancipation, the masses of black people, men and women alike, found themselves in an indefinite state of peonage. Sharecroppers, who ostensibly owned the products of their labor, were no better off than the outright peons. Those who, quote, rented, end quote, land immediately after emancipation rarely possessed money to meet the rent payments or to purchase other necessities before they harvested their first crop. Demanding as much as 30 percent in interest, landowners and merchants alike held mortgages on the crops. Quote, of course, the farmers could pay no such interest and the end of the first year found them in debt. The second year they tried again, but there was the old debt and the new interest to pay. And in this way. Quote, the mortgage system, end quote, has gotten a hold on everything that it seems impossible to shake off. Through the convict lease system, black people were forced to play the same old roles carved out for them by slavery. 
Men and women alike were arrested and imprisoned at the slightest pretext in order to be leased out by the authorities as convict laborers. Whereas the slaveholders have recognized limits to the cruelty with which they exploited their, quote, valuable, end quote, human property, no such cautions were necessary for the post-war planters who rented black convicts for relatively short terms. Quote, in many cases, sick convicts are made to toil until they drop dead in their tracks, end quote. Using slavery as its model, the convict lease system did not discriminate between male and female labor. Men and women were frequently housed together in the same stockade and were yoked together during the workday. In a resolution passed by the 1883 Texas State Convention of Negroes, quote, the practice of yoking or chaining male and female convicts together, end quote, was, quote, strongly condemned, end quote. Likewise, at the founding convention of the Afro-American League in 1890, one of the seven reasons motivating the creation of this organization was, quote, the odious and demoralizing penitentiary system of the South, its chain gangs, convict leases, and indiscriminate mixing of male and females, end quote. As W.E.B. Dubois observed, the profit potential of the convict lease system persuaded many Southern planters to rely exclusively on convict labor, some employing a labor force of hundreds of black prisoners. As a result, both employers and state authorities acquired a compelling economic interest in increasing the prison population. Quote, since 1876, end quote, Dubois points out, quote, Negroes have been arrested on the slightest provocation and given long sentences or fines which they were compelled to work out, end quote. This perversion of the criminal justice system was oppressive to the ex-slave population as a whole, but the women were especially susceptible to the brutal assaults of the judicial system. The sexual abuse they have routinely suffered during the era of slavery was not arrested by the advent of emancipation. As a matter of fact, it was still true that, quote, colored women were looked upon as the legitimate prey of white men, end quote. And if they resisted white men's sexual attacks, they were frequently thrown into prison to be further victimized by a system which was a, quote, return to another form of slavery, end quote. I think that I want to take a moment here to reflect on the passages that we read. I think that one of the things that isn't is very important about this the time period in which slavery ends and reconstruction is beginning or and before the end of reconstruction in the turn of the 20th century one of the things that's very important to point out is the beginnings of some of the the systems that exist currently and as we're pointing out here, as we're seeing here, as we're getting to the end of the 1800s, mass incarceration as we know it is not is not, you know, beginning to exist. It's not the same thing that that when we speak about mass incarceration, what they're talking about here is not that. But we can begin to see how imprisonment is in jailing in the criminal justice system, the criminal punishment system, as some people call it, is beginning to be used as a tactic and an instrument for continuing racism and racist ideology, but also continuing capitalism and capitalist ideology. I think one of the things that has been very prevalent throughout this book has been that capitalism has had a 
the fingerprints of capitalism have been on all of these issues that we have spoken about and that we have talking about in one way or another, whether it be the fact that the Republican Party, which was holding back women's suffrage in an attempt to push forward black male suffrage, even if it's in the even if it's under the guise of of doing that because it's trying to serve the capitalist class. I think that that's one of the things that was also important about the previous chapter that we read, the previous episode, is that a lot of the tactics that the Republican Party was taking was because they were trying to appease the capitalist class that they have found themselves the party of. And so here again, the the black people who have now been emancipated are being exploited by the by they're they're being exploited as they're becoming sharecroppers. They're being exploited when they're trying to buy land and when they're trying to have jobs. The exploitation of capitalism is still there. It just exists in a different manner, in a different light. And because capitalism in this society was created and built upon slavery, it was created and built upon genocide, it's going to always have some type of racist connotation to it some type of racist characteristics to it and so that is what we're seeing now we're beginning the the chattel slavery has ended but capitalism still demands exploitation and so the exploitation is adjusting the shape that is taking but because the capitalism that exists in this society is root again rooted in racism even though the shape that the cap that the exploitation is taking is changing the people it exploits the group that it exploits is still remaining the same i think another one of the things that's important to point out here as well is the the changing through time of of the manner in which black lives are devalued and so one of the things that is pointed out in this book and has been pointed out in multiple other books is that when slave owners had slaves and had these plantations that they did see these black bodies as you know as property and so even though they were their lives were a hundred percent devalued they were a hundred percent treated in an inhumane way the person also still felt as if this was a property that belonged to them that they had paid for that they had an investment in and so there was a different type of value to people under slavery than when we begin to get into convict leasing these people don't see these convicts as their own property as their own possession they see it as they're renting something as opposed to buying something and so you can understand how that would adjust the the value of these black uh, bodies and and again even with that adjustment it still is showing a devaluation of the life of these black people the fact that they that they you know exist within this type of uh, this type of a system and so uh, again when we begin to talk about and then another one of the things I want to point out is the the difficulties of building generational wealth which have been pointed out they were talking about in this chapter how black women were still being relegated to menial jobs and were still being relegated to not being able to you know accumulate a lot of 
money or to benefit heavily financially. And I think that one of the things that has to be pointed out from that is the generational impacts that that has. And for black people in this society, there is not a time period where you can find them having an equitable and equal opportunity within this country when it comes down to being able to build wealth, when it comes down to being able to accumulate finances and have an economic interest. And that traces all the way back to slavery. And it continues to this day in 2021. And I think that when we begin to speak about why certain issues are prevalent in the black community or in the communities of color, one of the things that cannot be overstated is the continued denial of building generational wealth, the continued denial of of economic gain that has been that has been dealt to uh, black people and people of color in this society. And that is why simply trying to make more money will not uh, liberate black people. And here, hold on one second. Let's uh, one second find where we was at in here. Okay. During the post-slavery period, most black women workers who did not toil in the fields were compelled to become domestic servants. Their predicament, no less than that of their sisters who were sharecroppers or convict laborers, bore the familiar stamp of slavery. Indeed, slavery itself had been euphemistically called the, quote, domestic institution, end quote, and slaves have been designated as innocuous, quote, domestic servants, end quote. In the eyes of the former slaveholders, quote, domestic service, end quote, must have been a courteous term for a contemptible occupation, not a half step away from slavery. While black women worked as cooks, nursemaids, chambermaids, and all-purpose domestics, white women in the South unanimously rejected this line of work. Outside the South, White women who worked as domestics were generally European immigrants who, like their ex-slave sisters, were compelled to take whatever employment they could find. The occupational equation of black women with domestic service was not, however, a simple vestige of slavery de destined to disappear with the passage of time. For almost a century, they would be unable to escape domestic work in any significant numbers. A Georgia domestic worker's story, recorded by a New York journalist in 1912, reflected black women's economic predicament of previous decades as well as for many years to come. More than two-thirds of the black women in her town were forced to hire themselves out as cooks, nursemaids, washerwomen, chambermaids, hucksters, and janistresses, and were caught up in conditions, end quote. Just as bad, oh, excuse me, and were caught up in conditions, quote, just as bad as, if not worse than, it was during slavery, end quote. <laughs> For more than 30 years, this black woman had involuntarily lived in all the households where she was employed. Working as many as 14 hours a day, she was generally allowed an afternoon visit with her own family only once every two weeks. She was, in her own words, quote, the slave body and soul, end quote, of her white employers. She was always called by her first name, never Mrs., and was not infrequently referred to as their, quote, nigger, end quote, in other words, their slave. One of the most humiliating aspects of domestic service in the South, another affirmation of its affinity with slavery, 
was the temporary revocation of Jim Crow laws as long as the black servant was in the presence of a white person. Quote, I have gone on the streetcars or the railroad trains with the white children and I could sit anywhere I desired, front or back. If a white man happened to ask some other white man, quote, what is that nigger doing in here? End quote. And was told, quote, oh, she's the nurse of those white children in front of her. End quote. Immediately, there was the hush of peace. Everything was all right. As long as I was in the white man's part of the streetcar or in the white man's coach as a servant, a slave. But as soon as I did not present myself as a menial, by my not having the white children with me, I would be forth with the sign to the, quote, nigger, quote, seats, or the, quote, colored people's coach, end quote. From Reconstruction to the present, black women household workers have considered sexual abuse perpetrated by the, quote, man of the house, end quote, as one of their major occupational hazards. Time after time, they have been victims of extortion on the job, compelled to choose between sexual submission and absolute poverty for themselves and their families. The Georgia woman lost one of her living jobs because, quote, I refuse to let the madam's husband kiss me, end quote. And then I think this, this that makes me think of, I don't know the, forgive me for not knowing the woman's name, but from my understanding there, the Me Too statement, the hashtag was something that a black woman came up with, created initially. And I think that when I think about sexual assault, sexual harassment in the workplace, sexual violence in the workplace, in this specific society that we're talking about, in the American society, it, the roots of it trace back to slavery. There are so many things in our society that trace back to, and I don't want to just only say well, specifically slavery for the sexual assault and sexual violence to women in the workplace, but also just in general, the violence that exists in our society, it cannot help but be traced back to the genocide of the indigenous people and the chattel slavery of the people that were here. The rape, the type of sexual assault and sexual violence that exists in our society cannot help but be traced back to the sexual violence that was inflicted upon the indigenous people of this land and the uh, the slaves that have been brought over here from Africa in this land. And the, the the murder that exists in our society cannot help but be traced back to the genocide of the indigenous people of this land and the the multiple violent terroristic acts that were done to uh, Africans and black people in this land. Uh, and so that was just a, a thought that popped out to me as I was reading through that. Quote, soon after I was installed as cook, he walked up to me threw his arms around me and was in the act of kissing me when I demanded to know what he meant and shoved him away. I was young then and newly married and didn't know then what, what, what has been a burden to my mind and heart ever since, that a colored woman's virtue in this part of the country has no protection. End quote. As during slavery times, the black man who protested such treatment of his sister, daughter, or wife could always expect to be punished for his efforts. Quote, when my husband went to the man who had insulted me, the man cursed him and slapped him and had him arrested. The police fined my husband $25. And I think that I want to point out here 
that when you come from a people who have had this type of experience with policing, this is a terroristic action. When you come from when you deal with the type of people who have had this experience from policing, it is not a it should not be a question why it is not a legitimate institution to them. It should not be a question why it is not a respected institution to them. Uh, as far back as I can remember being a, a black as far back as my memory goes, I have been I have never trusted police. I have never uh, felt comfort in police or felt that confiding in police would be able to uh, fix an issue that I was dealing with and facing. And it's because as far back as I can remember and as far back as I know, I have been educated and informed as to how black people are viewed by police, the experience that black people have had historically with police. And so again, in this chapter, which is at the very turn of the century, that from ending the 1800s, beginning the 1900s, we see the roots and the seeds of police terrorism mass and mass incarceration beginning to take place, take shape. Uh, let's see. After she testified under oath in court, quote, the old judge looked up and said, quote, this court will never take the word of a nigger against the word of a white man, end quote. In 1919, when the Southern leaders of the National Association of Colored Women drew up their grievances, the conditions of domestic service were first on their list. It was with good reason that they protested what they politely termed, quote, exposure to moral temptations, end quote, on the job. Undoubtedly, the domestic worker from Georgia would have expressed unqualified agreement with the association's protests. In her words, quote, I believe nearly all white men take and expect to take undue liberties with their colored female servants, not only the fathers, but in many cases, the sons also. Those servants who rebel against such familiarity must either leave or expect a mighty hard time if they stay, end quote. Since slavery, the vulnerable condition of the household worker has continued to nourish many of the lingering myths about the, quote, immorality, end quote, of black women. In this classic, quote, catch 22, end quote, situation, household work is considered degrading because it has been disproportionately performed by black women who in turn are viewed as, quote, inept, end quote, and, quote, promiscuous, end quote. But their ostensible ineptness and promiscuity are myths which are repeatedly confirmed by the degrading work they are compelled to do. As W.E.B. Du Bois said, any white man of, quote, decency, end quote, would certainly cut his daughter's throat before he permitted her to accept domestic employment. And then I'm going to take a second, second to end this segment here and we'll pop back up and finish this episode off in one minute. Well, for you, it won't be a minute, but. All right, let's pick up where we left off at. When black people began to migrate northward, men and women alike discovered that their white employers outside the South were not fundamentally different from their former owners and their attitudes about the occupational potentials of the newly freed slaves. They also believed, it seemed, that, quote, Negroes are servants, servants are Negroes, end quote. According to the 1890 census, Delaware was the only state outside the South where the majority of black people were farm workers and sharecroppers as opposed to domestic servants. In 32 out of 48 states, domestic service was the dominant occupation for men and women alike. In 7 out of 10 of these states, there were more black people working as domestics than in all the other occupations combined. 
The census report was proof that Negroes are servants. Servants are Negroes. Isabel Eden's companion essay on domestic service, published in Dubois' 1899 study, The Philadelphia Negro, reveals that 60% of all black workers in the state of Pennsylvania were engaged in some form of domestic work. The predicament of women was even worse. For all but 9%, 14,297 out of 15,704 of black women workers were employed as domestics. When they had traveled north, seeking to escape the old slavery, they had discovered that there were simply no other occupations open to them. In researching her study, Eden interviewed several women who had previously taught school but had been fired because of, quote, prejudice, end quote. Expelled from the classroom, they were compelled to work in the washroom in the kitchen. Of the 55 employers interviewed by Eden, only one preferred white servants over black ones. In the words of one woman, quote, I think the colored people are much more maligned in regard to honesty, cleanliness, and trustworthiness. My experience of them is that they are immaculate in every way, and they are perfectly honest. Indeed, I can't say enough about them, end quote. Racism works in convoluted ways. The employers who thought they were complimenting black people by stating their preference for them over whites were arguing, in reality, that menial servants, slaves, to be frank, were what black people were destined to be. Another employer described her cook as, quote, very industrious and careful, painstaking. She is a good, faithful creature and very grateful, end quote. Of course, the, quote, good, end quote, servant is always faithful, trustworthy, and grateful. Oh, sorry about that. <clears throat> U.S. literature and the popular media in this country furnish numerous stereotypes of the black woman as faithful, enduring servant. The Dilsies, the Bernices, and the Aunt Jemimas of commercial fame have become stock characters of U.S. culture. Thus, the one woman interviewed by Eden who did prefer white servants confessed that she actually employed black help, quote, because they look more like servants, end quote. The tautological definition of black people as servants is indeed one of the essential props of racist ideology. Racism and sexism frequently converge, and the condition of white women workers is often tied to the oppressive predicament of women of color. Thus, the wages received by white women domestics have always been fixed by the racist criteria used to calculate the wages of black women servants. Immigrant women compelled to accept household employment earned little more than their black counterparts. As far as their wage earning potential was concerned, they were closer, by far, to their black sisters than to their white brothers who worked for a living. If white women never resorted to domestic work unless they were certain of finding nothing better, black women were trapped in these occupations until the advent of World War II. Even in the 1940s, there were street corner markets in New York and other large cities, modern versions of slavery's auction block, inviting white women to take their pick from the crowds of black women seeking work. Quote, Every morning, rain or shine, Groups of women with brown paper bags or cheap suitcases stand on street corners in the Bronx and Brooklyn waiting for a chance to get some work. Once hired on the, quote, slave market, end quote, the women often find after a day's backbreaking toil that they were work longer than was arranged, got less than was promised, were forced to accept clothing instead of cash, and were exploited beyond human endurance. 
Only the urgent need for money makes them submit to this routine daily. New York could claim about 200 of these, quote, slave markets, end quote, many of them located in the Bronx, where, quote, almost any corner above 167th Street, end quote, was a gathering point for black women seeking work. In a 1938 article published in The Nation, quote, our feudal housewives, end quote, as the piece was entitled, were said to work some 72 hours a week, receiving the lowest wages of all occupations. The least fulfilling of all employment, domestic work has also been the most difficult to unionize. As early as 1881, domestic workers were among the women who joined the locals of the Knights of Labor when it rescinded its ban on female membership. But many decades later, union organizers seeking to unite domestic workers confronted the very same obstacles as their predecessors. Dora Jones founded and led the New York Domestic Workers Union during the 1930s. By 1939, five years after the union was founded, only 350 out of 100,000 domestics in the state had been recruited. Given the enormous difficulties of organizing domestics, however, this was hardly a small accomplishment. White women, feminists included, have revealed a historical reluctance to acknowledge the struggles of household workers. They have rarely been involved in the Sisyphean task of ameliorating the conditions of domestic service. The convenient omission of household workers' problems from the programs of, quote, middle class, end quote, feminists, past and present, has often turned out to be a veiled justification, at least on the part of the affluent women, of their own exploitative treatment of their maids. In 1902, the author of an article entitled, quote, A Nine-Hour Day for Domestic Servants, end quote, described a conversation with a feminist friend who had asked her to sign a petition urging employers to furnish seats for women clerks. Quote, the girls, end quote, she said, quote, have to stand on their feet 10 hours a day and it makes my heartache to see their tired faces, end quote. Quote, Mrs. Jones, end quote, said I, quote, how many hours a day does your maid stand upon her feet, end quote. Well, I don't know, she gasped, five or six, I suppose. At what time does she rise? At six. And at what hour does she finish at night? Oh, about eight, I think, generally. That makes 14 hours. She can often sit down at her work. At what work? Washing, ironing, sweeping, making beds, cooking, washing dishes? Perhaps she sits for two hours at her meals and preparing vegetables, and four days in the week she has an hour in the afternoon. According to that, your maid is on her feet at least 11 hours a day with the score of stair climbing, stair climbings included. It seems to me that her case is more pitiable than that of the store clerk. My caller rose with red cheeks and flashing eyes and said, my maid always has Sunday after dinner. I replied, yes, but the clerk has all day Sunday. Please don't go until I have signed that petition. No one would be more thankful than I to see the clerks have a chance to sit. This feminist activist were per was perpetuating the very oppression she protested. Yet her contradictory behavior and her inordinate insensitivity are not without explanation. For people who work as servants are generally viewed as less than human beings. Inherent in the dynamic of the master-servant or mistress-maid relationship, said the philosopher Hegel, is the constant striving to annihilate the consciousness of the servant. The clerk referred to in the conversation was a wage laborer, 
a human being possessing at least a modicum of independence from her employer and her work. The servant, on the other hand, labors solely for the purpose of satisfying her mistress's needs. Probably viewing her servant as a mere extension of herself, the feminist could hardly be conscious of her own active role as an oppressor. As Angela Grimke had declared in her appeal to the Christian women of the South, white women who did not challenge the institution of slavery bore a heavy responsibility for its inhumanity. In the same vein, the domestic workers union exposed the role of middle class housewives in the oppression of black domestic workers. Quote, the housewife stands condemned as the worst employer in the country. The housewives of the United States makes their millions and a half employ the housewives of the United States make their million and a half employees work an average of 72 hours a week and pay them whatever they can squeeze out of their budget after the grocer, the butcher, and etc. have been paid. End quote. Black women's desperate economic situation, they performed the worst of all jobs and are ignored to boot, did not show signs of change until the outbreak of World War II. On the eve of the war, according to the 1940 census, 59.5% of employed black women were domestic workers and another 10.4% worked in non-domestic service occupations. Since approximately 16% still worked in the fields, scarcely one out of 10 black women workers had really begun to escape the old grip of slavery. Even those who managed to enter industry and professional work had little to boast about, for they were co-signed, excuse me, for they were consigned, as a rule, to the worst paid jobs in these occupations. When the United States stepped into World War II and female labor kept the war economy rolling, more than 400,000 black women said goodbye to their domestic jobs. At the war's peak, they have more than doubled their numbers in industry. But even so, and this qualification is inevitable, as late as 1960, at least one-third of black women workers remained chained to the same old household jobs, and an additional one-fifth were non-domestic service workers. In a fiercely critical essay entitled, quote, The Servant in the House, end quote, W.E.B. Dubois argued that as long as domestic service was the rule for black people, emancipation would always remain a conceptual abstraction. Quote, the Negro, end quote, Dubois insisted, quote, will not approach freedom until this hateful badge of slavery and medievalism has been reduced to less than 10 percent, end quote. The changes prompted by the Second World War provided only a hint of progress. After eight long decades of, quote, emancipation, end quote, the signs of freedom were shadows so vague and so distant that one strained and squinted to get a glimpse of them. And that brings us to the end of chapter five. Hopefully we can get in a groove of just doing a chapter or episode from this point forward. I'm going to try to strive for that. I think the thing that stands out to me the most from this chapter is the, the slow pace in which black women were beginning to rise to have an equitable standing in a society. And I don't say that to say that that journey has been fulfilled or that that journey was completed, but the process of the journey was beginning. And I think that the slow pace of it, the small amount of progress that was made in that journey and what uh, was laid out here is eight decades at the end of that chapter goes to show you the danger 
of having policy changes or legislation changes when we have not yet forced a consciousness change or we have when we have not yet forced a uh, ideological and philosophical change when it comes to issues in a society. And so even though slavery for as was pointed out here for uh, some for political purposes uh, had been eradicated in the form that it once took in chattel slavery, we see here that because the capitalistic ideology and the capitalistic thought patterns that still existed in the society were there because the racist uh, thought patterns still, that existed in society were still there. Even once chattel slavery was over, there were all these different systems and institutions of exploitation and oppression that was put upon black women that was keeping them subjugated and marginalized in a very similar way that chattel slavery did. And I think that we have to do the job of of informing ourselves and educating ourselves about the truth of some of these mainstream historical uh, narratives that are out there. And one of those narratives that is heavily out there is that slavery was ended, black people were free, and it was and, and everything was fine after that. And then you just need to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And what this chapter perfectly illustrated is that even once they got rid of chattel slavery, there was still a, a, a humongous effort being put forth to subjugate and marginalize black people as a whole. And black women had a uniquely had a had a unique experience within that subjugation and marginalization because of the fact that not only were they a black so that made them oppressed and exploited but they were also women and that led to another form of exploitation and oppression and then again i think what's important to point out is just the difficulty of building generational wealth the difficulty of of one generation being able to come further or go further or make more progress than the previous generation how difficult that has always been for black people because of the fact that from generation to generation, the the circumstances and the environment that black people have had to live within has not had a uh, have drastic changes. It has not provided the opportunity to make uh, big steps in uh, from one generation to another generation. And so <clears throat> uh, I think we'll end this chapter here. Chapter six. I think one. Well, well, we are ending the chapter, but I said we'll get ready to end the episode here. Is what I'm saying, and we'll start chapter six next. But I think another one of the things I want to point out is uh, that I learned personally. I learned a lot about the how long it took for Black women to have an opportunity to do something outside of uh, of household work, outside of uh, uh, domestic work. And I think another one of the things that j that just stands out and points out again is the type of the long history of of hindrances and roadblocks that have been put in the way of black women in this society. And I just think that's something that we have to be cognizant of as I'm speaking of as a black man personally, when we are advocating about what things need to be adjusted or what things need to be changed to make sure that it is always space in there to make that that this isn't a change or uh, an adjustment that is strictly or solely for black men or black boys. That is something for black people as a whole. And so I want to end this episode here and I encourage people to go back and listen to previous episodes of Rock for Reading Daily. And if by the time you listen to this, there's more episodes out, please go and listen to those episodes as well. Share this with whatever platform you're listening to it on. And we'll be back tomorrow with another episode of Rock for Reading Daily. <laughs>